0: Welcome to Case by Case. This is a podcast series put together by Luke Sadkovich and Callum Chain of Sila Floyd Zadkovich in which we, uh, as the name suggests, look at legal cases on a case by case basis, seeing what's of interest in them, looking at you know, recent cases and developments that our clients, contacts, friends, colleagues might be interested in uh, Callum and I, we haven't spoken about the case we're going to talk about today, uh, albeit we know this area um, very well, and I think it's fair to say, near and dear to our hearts, having been involved in many alter ego Ruby cases over the years. Um, but we don't talk about it beforehand. We each read the decision, uh, jump onto the, the podcast, hit record, and um, and see what each of us made of
1: it. Callum, welcome. Thank you, Luke. Looking forward to this one. As you say, rule B, alter ego attachments, something that we've seen a lot of. So it's good to have a case that falls right into that sweet spot. And also good to do one from the other side of the pond. This is a U.S. case. Um... So something a little bit new to me. Being involved in a number of U.S. cases, obviously, but um, it's my involvement on the U.S. cases usually doesn't have me reading the the case law in great detail. So this was a, an interesting break from the from the English cases.
0: Yeah, good good stuff. Yeah. So good, for for listeners, uh, Callum's an English solicitor. I'm also an English solicitor, but um, I'm also qualified in in New York. Uh, in the us and and in Australia, so we, we, we like to keep abreast of what 's happening on both sides of the pond, so to speak um, and we 're often actually involved in cases that throw to both sides uh, and Callum and I've worked on a number of cases where we 've had um, a rule B or some type of attachment security proceeding happening out in the US and um, Callum and the English team, myself, will be working on the English matters as well. So um, especially when there's like an underlying uh, charter party or bill of lading or some other type of maritime contract uh, underpinning the security action that's subject to English law. So quite common that they throw to both jurisdictions and uh, uh, something we see quite a bit of.
1: Yeah, and it it seems as though the US generally is a reasonably good jurisdiction for a, for a party to seek security. That might be oversimplifying, it might be a bit of a um, broad statement, but it's it, it seems like it happens quite often that we'll have a case in arbitration uh, in London, uh, LMAA, LCIA, and we'll look to the US to see if there is any way anywhere that we can find security, partly because the US is obviously central to trading, so the physical assets are not infrequently within US territory, um, but also because the legal framework in, in the United States or in some of the circuits in the, in the United States seems to be reasonably favourable to a party seeking to, to attach security, to attach assets for security.
0: It's a good point, very good point, Callum. Um, and uh, it's probably worth making uh, making it now at, at the opening that There are distinct differences between the English approach to lifting the corporate veil and arguing that different corporate entities within a group, one and the same thing, to doing that in the United States, uh, which has a different test, different basis upon which to do that. And then within the United States, there are different thresholds, different tests for alter ego liability, as it's known there. Um lifting the corporate veil uh, and those types of actions. And we'll get into that a bit. It's, it's useful at the outset to say that this case that we're dealing with today, it's a recent case. It's a, a March uh, 2021 decision. Uh, and the the main parties involved are Pacific Gulf Shipping and their insurer, uh, Michael Ellison Company. And then on the other side, the defendants of Vigorous Shipping and Trading, Blue Wall Shipping, um, and other companies related to or alleged to be related to Adamastos shipping and trading. It was a Ninth Circuit uh, appellant decision, so this went up to the United States Court of Appeals in the Ninth Circuit, um, sitting in Oregon. The Ninth Circuit, for those of you who are not aware, is really the, the West Coast of the US. So you've got um, California, Alaska, Arizona, Hawaii, um, Washington State, Um, Oregon and some others that are in the Ninth Circuit. Uh, So this um, appellant decision relates to that circuit that covers those different US states. There are other circuits within the US that apply a slightly different test. And we'll unpack that a little bit as we get on. Um, Well, before we get on to the legal principles, Calum, is it worth uh, just giving a quick recap of the facts of this one?
1: Yeah, let's let's do that because again, as as I tend to say at the start of these, when I go through the facts, the the fact pattern is not is not particularly uncommon. It's something that we that again we see reasonably frequently. So um, let's go through it and um, yeah, take it take it kind of step by step. The first thing to note is that this claim is kind of ancillary to main proceedings, which had already concluded um, at the point that these proceedings started, and. fundamentally there was a dispute um, between a party called Adamastos which was a special purpose vehicle who owned a vessel uh, which was called the Adamastos which was operated by a company called Phoenix Shipping Adamastos had chartered the vessel out to Pacific Gulf who had onward chartered it to a company called Intergis who had onward chartered it to Marabeni Um, and there were a number of problems with this vessel. Uh, The an engineer who visited the vessel noted over 40 defects i think at one one stage um ultimately the vessel ran aground in brazil and it was promptly abandoned by owners the insurance was cancelled and liability for a huge amount of cargo damage kind of found its way up the claim up to pacific gulf the the head time charterer who then wanted to to uh, essentially, recoup that, some of that money against Adamastos. So they brought the claim against Adamastos in arbitration. They succeeded, um, and they had the benefit of an arbitration award against Adamastos. But there was no money in that entity. So we're in this relatively uh, frequent si- situation that we see in, in the kind of in the world of international trade, where there's a, a special purpose vehicle company which owns an asset which is which is a a vessel. Um, and doesn't own anything else but is part of a group structure that owns a number of different vessels um, in this case the the, the owning the, the ultimate owners seem to be the Gordo Michaelis brothers um, who owned Phoenix Shipping um, it wasn't actually mentioned in this judgment specifically but it appears that they are essentially the ult- ultimate beneficial owners in Adamastos that, that SPV and they also separately owned a company called Blue BlueWall and Blue BlueWall then owned eight different SPV um, ownership entities, one of which is Vigorous Shipping and Trading and Vigorous Shipping and Trading in turn owns a vessel called Vigorous. Um, and the, 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 the vessel Vigorous was attached by um, Pacific Gulf. In support of, or in, in in an attempt to enforce their arbitration award against Adamastos, uh, so you get into this question of, are Pacific Gulf entitled to arrest, uh, or to, sorry, to attach the, um, the, the 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 vigorous vessel in in order to enforce their claim against um, the Adamastos company? Yeah, uh, e- exactly, and it's it's one of those cases
0: we tend to see. Um, quite regularly not the exact facts but facts quite similar to that uh, where um, you may find that in the maritime context at least and it's not necessarily limited to maritime contexts, but where there's a group structure um, that's been put in place to separate different vehicles with SPVs and then separate management of those SPVs Attempts to separate ownership, but then what happens in practice uh, does not necessarily follow that structure um, and if you 're on the on the side of looking to um, enforce an award as it was in this case or indeed to get pre proceedings pre arbitration security, then you might try to look um, not just at the individual entity. Uh, that you have the claim against or the award against but also those companies related to them. And we get involved in many of these cases um, from an investigative perspective first sizing up um, how companies are structured and how they operate to um, either make the attachment and bring the attachments or indeed to defend them uh, if they're brought against uh, our clients so it 's something we know very well we we get involved in them all, all over the u s and so we 've come to learn the different um, the, the different tests in in the various circuits quite well uh, and and from a procedural perspective uh, just to give some intro into how this works what 's happened is that the um, the plaintiffs have um, brought the attachment proceedings against the defendants arresting the ship while it's in the jurisdiction. Um, security was posted a while challenges to the attachment were heard. The moving parties, so the parties that are defending um, the attachment, they have filed motions to dismiss um, and motions for summary judgment, essentially alleging that the... Um, allegations of alter ego, the allegations of successor liability that the uh, attaching party had made um, were not sufficiently made out. Um, And they would have filed those motions uh, at a threshold level immediately or shortly after being um, served with the papers. And then um, the first test if you like that the attaching party needs to get over is whether there's enough of a factual allegation here to support the um, the, the legal pleadings to get into jurisdictional discovery and that is where the um, the party who's on the receiving end of the attachment has to disclose discover um, relevant documentation that goes to the allegations that are being made about alter ego um, and in this case successor liability. And then after that period of discovery, I think there were 12, am I right, 12 depositions taken and over 100,000 pages of documents uh, discovered in the jurisdictional discovery in this case. The parties then have an opportunity to put in briefing papers um, and to argue that the evidence that has come out through discovery, that supports, the allegations, or as um, eventually turned out to be the case in this one, uh, there wasn't sufficient evidence, according to um, the, the first instance judge and then upheld on appeal by Circuit Judge Boggs, uh, that there just simply wasn't sufficient evidence um, through the jurisdictional discovery process to maintain the attachment.
1: So, if we step back um, the the basis for this attachment is essentially that the ownership of these two vessels, the vessel that, that caused the damage originally or or the, the company that owned the vessel that caused the damage originally the company against whom um, Pacific Gulf had had the claim is the same company in effect, if not in legal structure to the company that owns the um, the the vessel that was attached that's is is it fair to say that's that's essentially what um charters are or not charters pacific gulf are trying to show here that's you know if we strip back again you know away from all of the the legal questions that's really what they're trying to demonstrate to the court is that this is the same entity and they owe us um in respect of a debt owed to us by um the the company against whom we have the arbitration award
0: yeah, so think, you know, think Spider-Man or Batman or something like that, where you've got an alter ego. Um, it's <laughs> it's what one of the same person dressed up in some uh, underpants on the
1: outside exactly. or something like that. <laughs> Take off the cloak to reveal a cargo ship. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Scrub
0: off the name of the side. (laughs) We actually, usually, the the name of the vessel on the side sometimes comes into these alter ego claims. Anyway, I I digress. But but that's what we're talking about. We're talking about alter ego, meaning two entities that are effectively one and the same thing, even though they're set up separately. There was an additional allegation in this case, which is not seen all that often, but that's of successor liability. Um, And that was kind of given quite short, short shrift, I thought, by the court. And that's where one... Uh, company is closed down and transfers all its assets over to a phoenix new pardon the pun in this case, but a, a new phoenix like company um, that rises from the ashes and um, lo and behold has all the assets of the 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 other company that was wound down. Um, And uh, I don't think we need to get into the details too much of the successor liability element, but effectively what the the court said here was that there needs to be a transfer of assets for successor liability, and they just didn't have any demonstration of that at all. Um, The court found that that was a prerequisite for successor liability. So I think we'll we'll spend most of our time talking about alter ego um, and the alter ego allegations. So
1: looking at the alter ego allegations, there, there are tests um, and standards that a party has to meet if it wants to if it wants to get home on this alter ego allegation. And something that is discussed in this judgment that I know we've discussed before in the context of different jurisdictions is the uh, conjunctive standard versus the disjunctive standard. And I think that's something which is worth discussing as, as we go through the different things that you have to satisfy in order to to persuade the court that, that you're dealing with an alter ego.
0: Yeah, and it's critical to understanding how the different circuits work within the US to keep it at a very high level without getting into too much detail and and losing our listeners perhaps. In New York um, and neighbouring states, the second um, district, they apply a disjunctive test, um, whereas the Fifth Circuit you know, down in the Gulf of the US and the Ninth Circuit out in the West and others apply a conjunctive standard. And what we mean by that is there are elements to the alter ego test in the different circuits. And um, when we say a disjunctive test, what we mean is you need to show one element or the other element. And if you show either of those elements, you're home you've You've succeeded on the allegation, whereas when we talk about the conjunctive um, standard, you need to satisfy all the limbs of the test, and that is um, elevating or, or heightening the threshold upon which an attaching party um, can can successfully obtain a, an alter ego claim.
1: Yeah. And the the tests themselves are not are not particularly easily met because there's nothing there's nothing wrong legally with the concept of group ownership or wholly owned um, subsidiaries. So the idea of piercing the corporate veil, particularly from an English law standpoint, is not something that the court's going to do easily. They you have they have to really be persuaded that that the party who is seeking this alter ego attachment has has a good basis to say that it's more than a, a, a normal, completely legal situation of you know group ownership or or a wholly owned um, subsidiary. What what we're looking for goes beyond that, and I think that came across quite clearly in this judgment because the judge, you know, as you say, the judge gave quite, gave quite short shrift to a number of arguments, but one of them was the fact that there was something inherently wrong with uh, you know effectively this this type of structure. Hmm. Exactly. And so, if if I may just
0: touch on the um, the test in the Ninth Circuit. So the test for alter ego liability in the Ninth Circuit, in the circuit in which this Pacific gulf and vigorous decision was decided. Um, and there's three elements to this test. And I am paraphrasing here. So obviously, if you're ever looking at this in detail, um, please do refer to the judgments. But um, the first element is total domination of the subservient corporation. So you know, no, no kind of separate corporate interests. This this concept of total domination, and, and we also see reference to control. You know, domination and control of a parent with a subsidiary. So that's kind of the first limb. The second limb is that um, there there would be injustice that would result from recognizing the separate entity so if if it will bring about injustice that we now say that these two entities are, uh, should be considered separate um, rather than as one and the same and that's how they've been holding themselves out and not operating um, if it's going to bring some kind of injustice then that's the second limb that needs to be uh, satisfied and, the, and and okay and so this is the conjunctive test so one two and three Um, The the third one is that the controlling entity had fraudulent intent or an intent to circumvent statutory or contractual obligations. And and this, for me, is really the critical element here, this concept of fraudulent intent or intent to circumvent. Um, Anyone who's got some um, understanding of Uh, criminal law or has watched law and order over the years and knows what mens rea means once you start talking about intent and what someone subjectively intended to do you're looking at a higher threshold um and so it's it's those three elements that need to be satisfied in the ninth circuit
1: and to me the injustice element is probably the easiest of the three because i there is a there does seem to be an injustice in a situation where where um, an injustice in a very sort of general uh, almost moral way of looking at, at it in in a, in a situation where there is a a whole stash of money and a whole stash of assets within the same ownership, but a a party can't access those assets despite being liable to one of the group companies uh, because of the corporate structure that's been set up. That seems to me to be the to be perhaps the the cleanest of the three and And it's the other two that are really quite difficult to distinguish between normal um normal like I say normal group ownership and something which is wrong, and particularly where you have that layer of finding some kind of fraudulent conduct, essentially this this system being set up you know specifically to deprive creditors of um of of, a, of a recovery is a difficult thing to evidence and a difficult thing to show. Mm, and that is
0: closer to the English um, type of test for lifting the corporate veil that there's some fraud involved in in the in, in the cloak in, in the veil itself, you know, some sham that was set up from the outset. Um, so anyway, I, I won't go into the English test uh, right now. I'm keen to kind of unpack though the differences between the, the circuits in the US, and it, I, I find it quite interesting, Callum. You've picked up on. The second limb um, and the injustice limb as being probably the easiest of the three to to demonstrate because if if we think about the fifth circuit test and um, you and I we've dealt with this quite a lot in another case which we'll come on to to mentioning in in Texas the FinBank decision in that case which was a first instance. It, it didn't go up to the Court of Appeals. Um, but the, in that case, it was um, uh, explained that the the test in the Fifth Circuit is, there's only kind of two limbs to it, although I think it's almost, one, almost similar to the Ninth Circuit test. And that is abuse. So the first point was abuse of corporate form. So again, going back to this concept of domination, control, abuse, using the corporate form in ways that it's not intended to be used. And then the second um, part, and and there's only two parts in the Fifth Circuit, is that this abuse, so this abuse of the corporate form promoted a fraud or injustice that injured the plaintiff. And it's this concept of wrongdoing or some type of um, wrongful conduct. It's not While fraud is used in in the description I've just given, it's not necessary to demonstrate a fraud in the strict legal sense of that word. It could be some kind of injustice or wrongdoing or wrongfulness in in another way. But there's not this separate, you know, it's not described as an intent and there's not this separate injustice. It's almost like the injustice limb from the Ninth Circuit and the intent limb from the Ninth Circuit have kind of been bundled up into one in the Fifth Circuit without the, the strictness of the intent requirement. Um, so I, I thought that's really interesting.
1: Which makes a bit of sense to me. I mean, that, that makes a bit of sense to me. In, in, if you, It's hard to think of a situation where somebody would be going to the court asking for relief in, in a situation where there had been this kind of dominion and control over a subservient company um, with with a, with ill intent and some kind of fraudulent design, but there was no injustice it 's hard to think of a situation where some where, where that injustice limb would be in isolation the limb that was not satisfied if you have if you have If you have the other two and you 're asking for some kind of relief from the court you've you 've probably been the um, you've probably been exposed to an injustice somewhere along the line.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I thought this line was quite a good one, um, just summing this up in, in, in one sentence. Uh, this is from um, Circuit Judge Boggs. The Ninth Circuit has a conjunctive test. There must be domination and control and injustice from not piercing the veil and some form of ill intent. And just focusing on those last five words there, some form of ill intent. That's not that's not as high as saying it has to be a fraudulent intent or it has to you know it has to be has to satisfy the concepts of strict fraud as, as we know them. It's some form of ill intent or and there's also reference to the bad intent requirement elsewhere in this decision. So I I do think that that somewhat equates with the concept of wrongfulness and injustice that we see mentioned in the the fifth circuit, and that in even in the ninth circuit, whilst there is definitely a, a, an element of intent there as a part of the test, um, it it can be some. I, I think it's arguable some form of wrongdoing um, that that can satisfy that.
1: So. Perhaps using FinBank as an example, um, or or perhaps using I know this is mentioned the the different uh, kind of indicating um, the things that you might look for if you if you're trying to pierce the corporate veil was mentioned in this judgment as well. Um, but in practical terms, what sort of things are you looking for to to show that this is not simply a wholly owned subsidiary? This is something which goes beyond and it falls into this concept of abuse, abuse of the corporate form in the fifth circuit or dominion and control in the ninth circuits what are the what are the kind of things that, that that we look for when we do this investigative work
0: yeah so there's a there's a long list of indicia um that you can refer to rely upon in trying to make out alter ego allegations and no one um, factor is decisive, um, no combination of factors is decisive. It's really taken in the round. Um, and so that th- those are factors like um, disregarding corporate formalities, um, inadequate capitalisation, common ownership, use of shared telephones, contact details, offices, um, not dealing at arm's length, <laughs> Uh, between uh, companies using one company as a treasury account for multiple um, other companies, some companies not having bank accounts and using the, the bank accounts of others in that group, um, common management control, overbearing control, avoidance of kind of corporate form between shareholders and management. There's a long kind of list, cross Cross-company guarantees is another one that comes to mind. Um, and there are others, but it, it's kind of, there's a list of factors that, that are mentioned in the decisions on alter ego and that we rely upon. But you you also like to see, or you if you're trying to make out these allegations, you also are trying to look for some element of you know untowardness if that's a word or, or wrongfulness where it's it's not just a convoluted corporate structure but there's been some some benefit that that structure has yielded in shielding itself from liabilities and from other creditors so you you might look for things like patterns of not paying old debts or creditors chasing them or you know fancy footwork around closing a company and opening up another company, things like that, um, whilst they may may not necessarily go to the specific intent or wrongful limb that you need in the Ninth Circuit or in the Fifth Circuit, but if you're just looking at the domination and control factors, which is what we're talking about now, then you you still would like to see some elements of wrongfulness in there or some deceit of some kind.
1: And I think, it's it's not it's not only, at least in my experience, it's not it's not only that you that they're trying to avoid debt, so they're trying to avoid making payments. It can also be that they're trying to induce further business. So yeah, you know the the group company holding itself out as having this massive fleet. For example, we you know we own all these vessels. We're we're, we're a great uh, credit risk. If you want to, if you want to enter into business with us, then you know we have all these different vessels. And then when you lift the lift the bonnet, you find out that actually that company owns none of those vessels. But you've been induced into entering into a contract with them. For example, that it it's it's quite my experience looking at these things. At least has always been it's it's quite broad the way that you look at it at the start, and, and you kind of evaluate the in, the entirety of the of the of the target entity and the target group entity. And then you start to see if there are any patterns showing up, if there's any, if, if there are any things that, s- that stick out as, uh, you know, kind of jar against the idea that, the, that each, each of these entities are, are their own um, companies. Yeah. Um, yeah. And kind of see what you can find. And it, it, essentially you're almost looking for some degree of human error somewhere along the way. Someone, you know, people have forgotten to, to keep things as tidy as perhaps they ought to have done, or they've, they've overstated what one entity can do in isolation, Um is is sometimes enough rather than necessarily you know looking f- for something where it's it's a perhaps a, a more clearly f- fraudulent piece of conduct like trying to avoid paying somebody for something
0: yeah yeah i see that i see that and it, 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 the point you're making there i think is is a good one but it's important to to conceptually think about are you talking about the domination and control limb or are you talking about the wrongfulness limb, if I can call it that, or the two limbs there are in the Ninth Circuit? And this is coming back to the, the conjunctive test and disjunctive test. Because in, the, in New York, such a, you know important jurisdiction in the, in the US, um, in the Second Circuit, in which the, that state is, you can get by with alter ego on just satisfying the domination and control Limb, you don't need the wrongfulness limb as well. That's the the, the disjunctive standard. You can have wrongfulness without domination and control, and that's enough as well. Um, but when we're talking about the ninth circuit, which has this three-step test, as we've explained, or in the or in the southern states with the the fifth um, fifth circuit, and I, I should say some of these um, tests are still up for debate. There are, there are debates to be had. In the context of on every case, and it was even argued in in this decision, what is the actual appropriate test? Um, so there there are discussions and arguments to be had on the limits of these tests in the various states. But just looking at it from a you know a, a broad commentary type perspective, in the in the Fifth Circuit, you've got the conjunctive standard. So you need to satisfy domination and control and you need to have this wrongfulness element too. So what you're referring to um, for as an example of where um, uh, in, say, the contract negotiations and at the time of contract formation, one party is holding themselves out to have this big group company and that's relied upon, That is that is a factor that could go towards the domination control um, argument, I suppose. But I, I, I see that and, and we've used it in this way as well. I see that also as um, a, a wrongfulness argument. If there's been a misrepresentation um, or some, you know, so, some error, misdirection on the size of this company and a party's been led into a contract thinking that, that they are contracting with a big group and there are lots of vessels and assets in that group to to go after if something goes wrong, then that I, I think that could go towards um, the the wrongfulness type argument as well. Uh, there'd be debates about that depending on the circuit. You know, Ninth Circuit has this uh, ill intent, so that's you've got the subjective element coming into it again. There'd be debates around whether that's enough, but I, I, I'd, l- I'd like to make that point because... The way that the the courts look at these tests in the conjunctive states, particularly, is okay. Well, you might have domination and control. You've got lots of factors, but you don't have anything on wrongfulness, and that's kind of what was decided in the Pacific Gulf um, decision. It was it was accepted that there was some common ownership. It was accepted that um, the the brothers had involvement in the management. Uh, there was other, other issues around the use of uh, bank accounts across, across the, um, the companies. But it, it just wasn't enough. It didn't go to showing that there was evidence of ill intent. And that's where it really came down. So you'd want to, when you're looking at a, an attachment, a conjunctive state, you really want to be focusing on that wrongfulness element as well.
1: Yeah. And like you say, it almost seemed as though the, the judge went along with them to say, "Yeah, you, you know, you've you've you you've you've proved things that you've argued, but you haven't properly argued for these other limbs that you have to satisfy here, because we have this uh, conjunctive standard that, that we apply."
0: Yeah, it was it was almost as though the case was argued as a New York case, yeah. um, going for domination control without sufficient um, consideration of the. Um, the uh, the wrongfulness the ill intent element here um, and and that's you know that's not I don't mean that in a critical way because um, I anticipate that what the uh, the attaching party was hoping for if I can put it like that is they they had a, a you know, reasonable basis for putting out the allegations and making these allegations to begin with. They did enough to get into jurisdictional discovery. And as I say, that is a threshold. That's the preliminary threshold to get over. They got into that. There was extensive discovery, um, documentary and testimonial discovery. And then the evidence just didn't come out that they were, no doubt, hoping for. Um, And so, you know, you you are where you are um, at the end of the day there. And um, the, well, how did, the, how did the, the court describe it? It came away empty-handed from discovery. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. They, they don't, they don't, well, at least in, in this judgment, the, um, the US judge didn't really hold back with some of, it, some of the plain, plain speaking.
0: What did, you, what did you make of, just on that, what did you make of um, the differences between reading a, um, an English judgment and a US judgment? So this is, I, a, this is an I appeal feel, judgment too. Remember, this is a, yeah. a court of appeals decision.
1: And I, I feel like it's more formulaic in the um, in the on the U.S. side. Mm-hmm. It felt it felt more. I don't know if I can say cookie cutter, but it felt more as though the judge said, I'm, "I now consider this," and they deal with it very very briefly. Whereas on the English side, it feels like there's more. Um, there's there's slightly more of the judge's thought process before the judge's conclusion in some of the English judgments, and I don't know if that's consistent across um, across different uh, circuits, across different different judgments. But that, that was my impression, having having read this one. It was a little bit more. This is this is what I'm considering, and this is what my answer is. This is what I'm considering, and this is what my answer is. Um, whereas on the, in the on the English side, you, they perhaps uh, weave slightly more yarn to get there.
0: I think that's fair, and I, I, I'd agree with that across um, different decisions. Perhaps Supreme Court decisions um, have a bit more of the, the pros approach to them. Um, but it, in many of the decisions like this, maritime decisions you see and other commercial decisions, the, the judge pretty much answers the questions as they're put, in a way. Mm. Um, and, yeah, just as you've described. So I think that's a it's a fair uh, and, and reasonable uh, approach. Well, look, I think it's been, it's been a good one. Um, as, I, as I said at the opening, it, this is an area that we've done a lot on. Um, we've had a, a, a case, or i have had a couple of cases over last year on alter ego, quite large multi-million dollar cases, um, and one in the Fifth Circuit, which um, had a, a different outcome to the, the outcome here, um, at least in that the district judge gave a um, a decision on jurisdictional discovery that um, upheld the initial attachment and, and vacated the the motion to dismiss, and I just wanted to finish um, my finish my points on on this case by just touching on that one briefly, Callum. Yeah. Um, and the real distinguishing feature between that case, which was a Fifth Circuit case in Texas, and this is a, an Oregon Ninth Circuit case that we've talked about today, the Pacific case. But for all intents and purposes, they're both conjunctive states. I think it, the, 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 this argument would have held in both jurisdictions. But in the Finbank decision, uh, th- what what we relied upon and the and the judge um, accepted at a preliminary level. Okay, this wasn't a final decision. This was just following jurisdictional discovery. We saw off the motions, um, so it wasn't a final decision on the point. But what what was alleged there that caught the judge's attention was that the SPV that owned the the vessel, um, the asset, and this is the SPV that the attaching party had the claim against, they had disposed of the vessel and it was no longer in the ownership of that SPV. And they did that with full knowledge of, um, of the claim. there had actually been a standstill agreement in place between the parties which had lapsed and then uh, the asset was moved. And that was enough, um, that disposal of an asset was at least enough not to finally decide the decision, but to see off a motion um, to dismiss and allow the case to move forward. And, and it's, it's a good point for me because when you're looking at wrongfulness, when you're looking at ill intent, when you're trying to satisfy the other side of the conjunctive standard, not the domination control standard, but the other side, whether it's injustice, ill intent, wrongfulness, you're looking for things like that. You're looking for disposal of assets, you're you're looking at as you said a misrepresentation case that's another good one Um, some some clumsiness in there uh, if you're on the side of you know
1: wanting to make good on an attachment yeah yeah exactly it's good fun actually the the process of trying to build these applications you feel a bit like a PI going through all the papers (laughs) and trying to find out you know piece the jigsaw together yeah (laughs) One of, the, one of the really enjoyable things, things to
0: do. Yeah, absolutely. All right, then. Well, um, I think we've, uh, we've rattled on enough about alter ego uh, in the US. i uh, really enjoyed it. It's, it's an area of law I find fascinating, and I actually really enjoy practicing it for those reasons you've just given, Callum. Good to have a chat with you today about it. Uh, I hope everyone's uh, enjoyed today's podcast. If you've got any questions, of course, you know, feel free to follow up with Callum or myself. Um, and we've enjoyed having you uh, listening in today. Thank you for your support, and, and please do continue to follow and subscribe our podcast. Thank you. Thanks very much, everybody. Goodbye.